Most of the time when we think about grace, we think about Christ dying on the cross as a substitution for the death we rightly deserved. That the creator of the universe would not only limit himself to a humble human body, but to suffer such an agonizing ordeal on our part is enough to bring anyone who is sincere in their faith to their knees. We may also think of grace as that irresistible, irreversible moment of impact when we got saved. Whatever your Damascus Road experience was, there is a point in your life that your heart was renewed and your eyes were opened to the truth. There was a moment when God revealed himself to you, lifted you up out of the darkness, and began walking with you forever. Certainly both of these views on grace are true and good. However, it's also true that we're not made perfect in this life and have many struggles and challenges once God makes himself known. This is the journey of sanctification, which happens after grace irreversibly and irresistibly impacts the momentum of our lives. It is a journey of ups and downs, of successes and failures, and becoming more like the image of Christ. Throughout these times, the enemy will do one of two, or both, probably, things to try to separate you from God once more. Of course, we know this is impossible, but nevertheless, this is the nature of the enemy. He will either try to convince you that the world is much better, or he will try to convince you that you are unsavable. One is through desire, and the other is through fear. And because the devil is a master of duality, he knows how to ping-pong your mind from left to right and back again all day long. I find it interesting that the Bible mentions the phrase, do not swerve to the left or to the right, over 16 times. We know Christ told us to follow the narrow road, so there's something to be said here. Grace is the narrow road, the road between the extremes of the world that the devil uses to gaslight you and to deceive you. On one side, you have legalism and the countless works-based religions and spiritual paths. And on the other, you have universalism, that everyone is saved no matter what, license to sin, the prosperity gospel, and all of these other worldly things. In the end, they are both rat races that lead to spiritual slavery because they're both tactics of the enemy. Grace is that narrow road that acknowledges we were bought for an immeasurable price in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, yet remembers that God's intervention in our life is the guarantee that we will be preserved and inherit his promises, Ephesians 1 verse 14. Because this road is narrow and the devil knows it, He will try to throw you either to the right or to the left constantly so that you fall out of grace. This is done either with temptation and worldly things that pull at you, or it's done with legalism and forgetting the finality of Christ's perfect work so that you feel unworthy of God's love and you despair as a result. Sadly, I see many Christians in both of these categories, and that is another testament to the fact that we are living in the end of days when great apostasies will happen and the enemy has full license to deceive the world. Nevertheless, it is during this dance of life, which is the entire journey of sanctification after one is saved, that we must remember the following two perspectives on grace I want to share with you. The first has to deal with the past, and the second has to deal with the future. It's easy to despair when we're dealing with old habits, old mistakes, old attitudes, and behaviors over and over again. Some things seem to have changed overnight, while others seem like they will take a lifetime to change. 
In these times, we must remember that grace is so much more than just a moment of impact when God opens your eyes. No, it's actually much more. God was patient with you the many years before he opened your eyes. He was patient through the idolatry, the lust, the anger, the blasphemy, the coveting, the stealing, and the other countless things we all have done. He waited patiently through all of your mistakes, enduring them like a kind parent endures their growing child. He let you live instead of letting you die in your sins. He let you grow and he waited for you to return, just like in the parable of the prodigal son. This grace is a testament to God's steadfast love and plan for you. And it brings me to the next point. God has made provision after the impact. In other words, God did not just open your eyes and walk away, leaving you to figure it all out. By the contrary, he opened your eyes, gave you living water and true bread from heaven. He fed you and clothed you after finding you lost and naked in the wilderness of your sin. He waited for you to have enough strength to stand up. He took you by the hand and he began walking with you toward the promised land, knowing it wasn't going to be an easy ride. Do you not think that such a God, rich in mercy and unsearchable in wisdom, did not make provision for the journey there? This is grace as it is applied to your future, and combined with the grace you received in your past, it paints a complete picture of God's undying love. We are enveloped in his mercy from before we were born all the way through eternity. What a profound and incomprehensible level of love. Yet, it's true. The enemy knows it too, and it's exactly why he tries to pull your attention into the present moment of failure so that all seems lost. The journey of this life is one of discovering the many dimensions of God's grace before the real deal begins. It's like this so that we have ample context for the true existence waiting on the other side. Otherwise, we would be like Adam and Eve without a shred of understanding as to the enormity of our existence and to the enormity of God's love. It had to be this way. Because you cannot have grace without failure, what this means is that God's love is revealed through the mistakes we make. If God had shown you grace but walked away after a few mistakes, that wouldn't be grace, now would it? That is in fact how we show grace most of the time to others. It is up to a point, and then we turn it off. Sometimes that point is sooner and sometimes that point is later, but in either case, it is not like God's grace at all, because God's grace is eternal and perfect, just like he is. There are days when we fail, even fail at things we think we should have mastered already. There are days when we may even feel that we have lost our salvation. What a silly thought, but at least we know now who this thought is from. God is not called the God of salvation many times in scripture because he simply offers salvation, or even because he saves people in the sense of a single saving event. No, God is called the God of salvation because he saves completely. He brings the dead back to life. He brings matter out of nothing, and his word is more sure than the rising of the sun. He saves to the uttermost those he wills to save because he is God and there is no one like him. And if he has chosen in his mercy to open your eyes, rest assured that his grace was not momentary, but rather a revelation of something eternal and enduring. God cannot deny himself. Nothing that he does is temporary or flimsy. His work can never be sabotaged. While life may be full of storms, 
and the enemy seems as if he has endless flaming arrows, we must remember that the shield of God's grace is all-encompassing and eternal, just like he is. Sin was dealt a death blow on the cross, and what that means is that our mistakes can never separate us from God ever again. So, walk the narrow road, swerving neither to the right nor to the left. And if you do, know that he hasn't gone anywhere, but rather is right there with you to the end, just as he promised. This is grace, a reflection of God's pure and perfect nature. It's not transient or momentary. It's not probation. It is patient. It is kind. It is steadfast. And it is more than enough for all of our needs, and certainly more than enough for all of our mistakes. Thank you.